Hey everybody, welcome back this week as we walk through the Word together. And as we walk out this truth, we discover that life is produced in us and also in other people. We are walking with one another, growing together to see the life of Christ continue to manifest and birth in us and then to see it spread outside of the walls of our houses and our church building. Lord, I just pray as we continue our study in Acts, would we see you more clearly? Would we know you more intimately? Would our perspective of you line up with what the Scripture says about you? Would our hearts be more convinced of ever of your goodness, of your power, of your mercies, of your love, of your tenderness? And would we be transformed by it? So I just pray you'd have your hand on this, even as I speak, Lord, your Holy Spirit, speak to me and through me. Um, I would honor you with this. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue our study in Acts. I'm going to hit the last verse of Acts 12 and then go to the first part of Acts 13. But I'm going to have like a recurring theme of the word perspective. So I'm going to repeat that word a lot. I'm aware that I'm repeating it. But isn't it interesting how different our perspectives are? Right? If I were to start talking about politics right now, first off, a couple of you guys would wake up, who are a little drowsy, right? Especially some of the gentlemen. No offense, won't call anybody out. But like, it raises your attention, right? But it's interesting how different we view things. You know, like even preferences. My wife thinks that it's like a freezer in here on Sundays, whereas I'm pretty comfortable. I like it. Jay, you like it. You know, we just have different perspectives on everything. You know, my, my daughter's making these bracelets and earrings, and she's like, I've got money, I've got money. I'm like, well, how much money you got? She's like, $15. <laughs> if I had $15, I'm like, man, I'm broke, right? <laughs> but we, we just see things differently. My, my kids, when I drop them off to school, every kid's wearing a hoodie. It doesn't matter if it's 100 degrees. It doesn't matter if it's 70 degrees. They're wearing a hoodie. In my perspective, I'm like, really? A hoodie? Maybe you guys have seen this in the schools. I'm like, what? It's just different perspectives on everything. I remember when I was uh, living abroad, had a full-time job, um, had a part-time job, and I was a full-time grad school student. I remember one time one of my kids was like, I got so much homework, Dad. And in my mind, I'm like, are you kidding me? You have so much homework? I, I don't say this. I try to be a little more gentle and kind, but in my perspective, I'm like, you have no idea. That's what I'm thinking, right? And different things affect our perspective. If we're tired, if we're lonely, you know, this week Jay saw where hunger kind of affected my perspective a little bit. I kind of started flirting with hangry. Anybody else ever get hangry? I definitely do. Jay will confess he saw it. But my question for you tonight, this is the question I want you to walk out of this room thinking is this, what is your perspective of God? This is the most important question you can ask yourself because it's the most important thing about yourself. What do you believe to be true about God, about his character, about his nature, about his power? What do you believe? And maybe a better question is, is what, do you, what does your life say that you believe? Because sometimes what we articulate is different than what our lives functionally display. What does your life say that you believe about God? Maybe you're like me, and I used to think he's this angry judge waiting for me to make a mistake. Or he's this foreign, distant, cold God. Or maybe you think he's it's kind of like an extracurricular activity, just kind of something that you engage in on Sundays. We're going to talk about what's a true biblical perspective? Who is God? So we're going to go to Acts. Again, I'm going to start with the last verse of Acts chapter 12. 
we're just going to walk straight through this. When Jay invited me to preach, of course, uh, grateful for the opportunity to get to share, but then I read the passage, and there's one really tough part in the passage, and I was like, oh man, I should have had Jay do this one, because this one's complicated, and as you know, Jay is just awesome with this, right? Passionate about the Lord, such a great communicator, but I thought, well, I'll do it, I'll do it, Lord, speak to me, help me out here. So before we read it, I do want to give one gentle invitation. It's important when we study scripture that we have a a few basic tools, understand context, but we have this temptation as humans, but even more so as Americans, that when we come to the word, we want to ask this question, what does this have to do with me? Right? It's not a bad question, but it's not the best question. See, this isn't all about us. Yeah, it is, it is a love letter, but this is about the Lord. So a better question is, is, what does this reveal about the Lord? What does it reveal about his character and his nature? Because this is really one story about God's redemptive plan that was made possible by the completed work of Jesus Christ. So it's good to think it is their application here, but more than anything, what does this have to say about the Lord? And I say that if if you were to open your Bibles and you start reading the genealogies, you're like, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, nothing. But if if you're processing, well, what does this have to do about the Lord? Oh, it shows like his divine design. It shows him working through generations and generations, his faithfulness, his sovereignty. Or it shows the holiness and the purity. And if we have this question of like, what does this have to do with the Lord? Sometimes we read even a genealogy and we're like, whoa. It can inspire awe because what it reveals about the Lord's nature and his character, the way he's been working and orchestrating, even when we're clueless to it. So a better question is, is what does this reveal about the Lord? So we're going to go to Acts 12. If you have a Bible, digital, or paper, I'm going to start in verse 25. But to make sure you understand contextually, there's five main characters. First one is a guy named John Mark. He also went by John. He also went by Mark. I've got slides of each one of these. He's a young guy. And really, he's like, he's the first Christian intern. Right, John Mark. And he's cousins with a guy named Barnabas. Barnabas is the next guy. Barnabas was known as an encourager. He's known as being very wise. He's an older one. Scripture tells us in Acts that he was an apostle. Barnabas is the one that when Paul made a profession of faith of Christ, Everyone else was terrified, all the apostles. And Barnabas received Paul, and he introduced him. So Barnabas was very wise. Then the next three characters are the focus of this this passage. The third one is Paul. Paul the apostle, who wrote 13 books in the New Testament. Powerful, bold, direct, eloquent, intelligent. The fourth is Sergius Paulus. He's basically a governor. The, The passage calls him a proconsul of Paphos, but he's basically a governor. And then the last one is a guy named Alemus. He's also called Bar-Jesus. And he was a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet who would give counsel and advice to the governor, Sergius Paulus. So these are our five characters. We're going to focus on the bottom three. But I'm going to start in verse 25. It says this, when, Paul and Bar- when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for, what, for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. 
The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was their helper. I'm going to jump ahead, actually, just read verse 13 now. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. So first thing I want you to notice is that this guy, John Mark, he only survived like 13, 14 verses. It's not a real long ministry stint, right? He starts the last verse of Acts chapter 12, Acts verse chapter 13, by verse 13, 14. He's like, I'm out of here. Not a long stint. I've got a little silly meme here, but I just want to say this is that ministry is hard. It's difficult. I'm, I think I've got a silly meme, maybe. Would you agree with me, Jay? Ministry is hard, right? Anybody here? John? John, ministry easy. Don't get me wrong. It's like sacred and beautiful and incredible to experience these things. The baptisms, the conversions, to watch the spiritual growth. But it's excruciating at times as well. And so I say that to say I can understand how John Mark felt. To give you some context of John Mark, if you remember when Jay was preaching, Peter's locked in prison, right? An angel comes, pokes him in the side. He gets up. He doesn't even know what's happening. He doesn't think it's real. He walks straight out, and he went to John Mark's house. So John Mark, this is John Mark's perspective. He sees God do this crazy thing for Peter. So he hears about his cousin Barnabas going on a little mission trip with Paul. So he says, sure, I'll go. And they're going to a place called Cyprus. Now, Cyprus, first century, was considered like, like what we would regard Hawaii or the Bahamas, it was known as having like the perfect climate. It was known as having abundant resources. It was referred to as the Happy Isles. Maybe there's a few of you that might remember a show called Fantasy Island. Anyone? Maybe. Anyways, it's a beautiful paradise. And it wasn't a long trip. So John Mark said, yeah, sure, I'll go. He saw what the Lord did with Peter. So he goes. And uh, I wonder exactly what happens. We don't have all the details. I think what happened was... John Mark came from a wealthier family. He didn't quite have the accommodations he was used to. When they start their mission trip, they travel from east to west across this island. And if you look what the scripture doesn't say, we don't really see much happening. He was expecting this, the same supernatural crazy things. And what does he happen, have? Well, he has this crazy spiritual warfare, which I'm about to get into. And that was enough for him. But I just say this to say that ministry is hard. Being on the mission field is hard. When we came back from the mission field, the first thing I did personally was to get professional counseling. So grateful for it. So good for me. Sometimes we just need help processing our frustrations and our emotions and our hurt. Sometimes a friend is the best place and sometimes there's a lot of value in having a professional do it. But I say that to say that ministry is not only hard, but life is hard. So let's show each other grace. Let's help each other process help each other grieve, help each other walk through things. So here we have this situation. Um, ministry's hard, but there's something that we, we can miss in these first verses, even verse one, if we don't have a, a contextual understanding. If we can flip to verse one of chapter 13, we've got these different names of the people who are traveling, right? One of the names is Simeon. It says his other name was Niger, which is Latin for black. Lucius was from North Africa, so he was probably black as well. What I want to hit at is that 
all these people in, in the New Testament in Acts come from Palestinian cultures. So we have a very diverse, multi-ethnic early church. I believe the Lord wants us to have a, a diverse church. The kingdom of God is diverse. I think the church should be diverse. Because the majority of these people in Acts come from what's modern day Iran, Iraq, Syria, uh, Turkey, some from Egypt, some from Ethiopia. And what I'm getting at is that very few, if any people in the New Testament would be what we would call white people, right? Does that, does that surprise anybody? Kind of like, wait a minute. If you went to Sunday school as a kid, right? All the Bible stories, all the pictures, it's all a bunch of white people. It wasn't like that. I'm trying to get this, I'm trying to drive this home because I want to make sure that the lens that we're thinking through the scriptures, our perspective is accurate with scripture and we're careful. Just again, our American culture wants us to make everything about us. And it's not about us, it's about him. And we get to be a part of what he's doing. And he's with us and he's for us. So I say that, say, okay, diverse church, which is, which is what we, uh, we celebrate and we have. But we've got this situation where John Marks with Barnabas and Paul, they travel 130 miles to this island. They start spreading the gospel, trying to go on east to west across the island. Nothing's really happening. And then we have this spiritual warfare happens, which was inevitable. Let's start in verse 6. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, also a, a governor, was an intelligent man. Sent for, he sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the sorcerer, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, this part's really crazy. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elemus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. Kind of crazy, right? Whenever it says, and full of the Holy Spirit, it really catches my attention. And here's what Paul said, full of the Holy Spirit, you're a child of the devil. Well, that's not what I would expect, right? He says, you're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time. Not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately he became blind. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So here's what we have. Paul, Barnabas, John Mark, they come in contact with spiritual warfare They've got this sorcerer guy who's a false prophet. And they've got the governor, uh, Sergius Paulus. And there's battle that happens. Now, let me just pause for a second and tell you this. Is, spiritual warfare is real. I'm not saying um, there's a temptation to over-spiritualize, hyper-spiritualize. But it's clear that there is spiritual warfare. And we have to be wise. We have to be prepared. If you notice what happened when Jesus was born and began his ministry, he initiated a phase of the kingdom of God that was different. You see, when we look at the Old Testament, we can see things like Naaman healed from leprosy. We see both Elijah and Elisha being used to resurrect dead. We see Lord supernaturally providing food, whether it's bread coming down from heaven or it's ravens delivering food to his prophet, right? We, we see glimpses of these things that are the same that we see in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, we see one thing that we don't see in the Old Testament, and that is the power over evil, the power to cast out evil. It's something that Jesus initiated. 
And it's something that he gave us the power to do. Remember in Acts 1, Jesus' last words before he ascends to the Father, after the resurrection, his very last words, he says, wait here, because the Father has a gift for you. What was the gift? The Holy Spirit. He says, and when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will have power and you will be my witnesses. So I say that to say that we have power. We have to choose wisdom. We have to be prepared. So here Paul engages in spiritual warfare. In verse 9, he fixes his gaze on Elimus. Verse 10 says he's full of the Holy Spirit. It says you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. So now the question is, is, what in the world do we do with this? Right? That doesn't really seem like a Christian thing to say. You're a child of the devil. It's careful not to point at anybody. I'm <laughs> facts and that'd be rude. You're a child of the devil. What in the world? What do we do with this? It all goes back to our perspective of God and our perspective of Paul. So we have to have an accurate perspective of God and an accurate perspective of Paul so we know how to interpret this. So first, our perspective of God, meaning what do we know about his character? What do we know about his love? What do we know about his heart? And here's what we know is all throughout the scriptures, it says things like, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. It says things like the Lord's kindness leads to repentance in Romans 2. It talks about his mercies being new every morning in Lamentations. Isn't that amazing? His mercies are new every morning. Romans 5. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. One author and speaker that I like to follow says, maybe the most distinguishing mark of spiritual maturity for a Christian is our love for our enemies. Man, that was convicting for me. I get mad at like my kid's coach if they don't play my kid enough in the sport. You know, I'm like loving my enemies? A little disturbing as the area for growth, but I think about Jesus when, when he was about to be arrested. They've got all these soldiers and they call out. They, well, he, he says, Hey, who are you looking for? And like, Jesus of Nazareth. And what's Jesus say? He says, I am. And there's so much power that they all fall down to the ground. Then he lets them take him. Remember, Jesus didn't lose anything, he gave his life. Perspective has to be right. He did it willingly because he could have called down legions of angels. Peter pulled out a sword, cut this guy's ear named Malchus. What does Jesus do? He heals his enemy. He heals this guy's ear and it's a cut. Some scholars say just a minor cut because in our mind we like to visualize the ear being lacerated completely off. But here Jesus is healing someone who not only doesn't ask for a healing, we have no reason to believe they had faith for a healing. Why would he do this? Because this is the character and nature of God. Tender, loving, but powerful. Like incomparable power, incomparable love. Illogical and radical love and power. Well, that's God. So what do we do about Paul? Because he's the one who spoke these words, right? Here's what we know about Paul. In Acts 14, which Jay will share on, we see things, for example, Paul gets completely stoned, right? Now, obviously, contextually, if I say Paul got stoned, it can mean something different. Talking about Paul gets like pummeled with stones until they think he's dead. What's he do? He just gets up and keeps on going. So we see Paul's commitment to the gospel. 
At the end of 2 Corinthians, there's this long list of all the things he suffered, like shipwreck, without food, without clothes, in danger of bandits. But he says he had the, it's called 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes five times. I studied this a lot because it really caught me off guard that Rome, like a Roman citizen, Paul, would receive that. And I've shared this before in some other contexts, but there's a collection of the earliest Jewish oral tradition called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah lists 36 sins, one of them being blasphemy, that if a, a Jewish person commits one of these sins, the brother is removed from the people of God and removed from God. Are you tracking with me? So they believe that Paul had committed blasphemy by preaching Jesus. But the Mishnah said this, if the brother receives a scourging, a flogging, which is the 39 lashes. See, the Romans, they had mastered torture. They knew that 40 was too much. 40, the person was likely to die. But if a brother receives the 39 lashes, they maintain their status as a brother. What am I saying? Paul didn't care about being called a Jew. He said in 2 Corinthians, to the Jew I became the Jew, to the weak I became the weak. Philippians 3, he said, I can't all this rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus. Then why did he do it? I said he voluntarily received the beating so that he could continue sharing the gospel with his Jewish brothers and sisters. Are you with me here? Can you imagine that? Five times? I've got this huge like scar on my leg, a motorcycle accident about this big. It's so tender, even like years later. I can't imagine his back being ripped open again and again and again, all just so he could have the opportunity to share the gospel. So here's our perspective on Paul. So what do we do with this? Well, I'll say there's two things that I would say. Why was Paul so harsh? He was so harsh because the, the eternal destiny of Sergius Paulus, the governor, was on the line. And when we look through scripture, we see that since the harshest words are often reserved for those who stand in the way between God and man, in between God and truth. Remember Jesus even saying, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the depths of the lake than for you to cause one of these little ones to sin. It's pretty alarming. It's one thing for us to waller. It's another thing for us to cause someone else to stumble, walk away from the faith. But the second thing I want to point out is that Paul didn't actually cause physical harm. It was definitely inconvenient. But I believe Paul was remembering his past. If you remember in Acts chapter 9, Paul was struck blind. As a result, he had a radical conversion. I have a feeling that when Paul was doing this, because Paul didn't have the power to make this guy blind, the Lord had to have done it. I had a feeling that Paul was thinking, Lord, do to them what you did to me. See, when we have a, a traumatic experience in our lives, we, we can remember the words that were spoken to us at that time. When Paul was blind for three days, I'm certain he was just rehearsing Jesus' words to him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I'm sure that Elimus was reciting these words that Paul had said over him. And Paul had the hope of salvation. But I want to say this is that if, if we were able to ask Paul about his, his experience being struck blind, 
I don't think he would consider it like a curse or something tragic. I think he would consider it like the greatest blessing of his life, right? That's what it took to change drastically his perspective of who God is, of who Jesus is, of the way to God, which is only through Jesus. And I say that to say is that I think some hard things that we have been through, you've been through, I've been through, have actually, if they're not already, they're blessings. I mean, I'll be really honest, maybe 12 years ago, I got fired from a job. I thought I was doing a great job, to be honest. Maybe I lack self-awareness. There's no moral issues. But they said, Adam, we want to do things this way and this philosophy. And I'm like, well, that's it's not really what I'm gifted to do. And I don't really have a desire to do that. And you know what? Instead of it being like a great curse and me spiraling into depression, which is what I would have expected, the Lord used it actually to awaken dormant things in my heart. And I consider that one of the greatest markers in my journey with the Lord of like a hunger and a passion. For me, that's when the Trinity changed from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I'm grateful. And I love and bless that church. I, I maintain friendships with them. But I'm saying that hard things, he can redeem them for good. Romans 8 says he works all things for our good. It's important we grasp this so that our perspective of God is accurate. So I'd say this. Holy Spirit is not predictable. But I will say that this passage in Acts 13 speaks clearly a few things. One, God makes it clear that Jesus is the only way to the Lord. It's so important for Paul to get to speak to Sergius Paulus that he caused this wizard false prophet to be blind because it was that important. His eternal destiny was on the line. But it also shows that the power of Jesus is so much more powerful that it's in incomparable compared to any other power. Unquestionable superiority. So I ask you again, what is your perspective of God? Zephaniah 3. I don't have slides for these things. They're just passages that came to mind. Zephaniah 3.17 says that he will rejoice over us with singing. He takes great delight in us. Isn't that incredible? He's jealous for us. The one who spoke everything into existence is jealous for us. He invites us into freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, 2 Corinthians 3, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Galatians 5 is for freedom we've been set free. He wants us to walk in freedom and joy. And I want you to know that he can be trusted. It's important we understand, yes, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. But his love for us doesn't change. His mercies don't change. He loves us more than we can imagine. And he can redeem the hard. I don't know where you are today. Uh, maybe, maybe you're John Mark and that's, you're still sitting, yep, ministry's hard and that's all you heard. Uh, maybe you're in a place where like, yes, Lord, please redeem the hard for good. Uh, maybe you're in a place where you're facing spiritual battles. But I'm just gonna pray and release blessing as we just have one more song of worship just to bring our hearts and minds to examine our perspective of God. As we're worshiping, I feel like the Lord just gave me this word from Psalm 63. And it's this psalm where David is running from his son who's trying to kill him. He's hiding. Now this son has just murdered another son because that son raped his daughter. That's what David's going through. 
And David says things like this in the desert. He says, my soul thirsts for you, God. He says, my soul clings to you. He says, my soul will be satisfied with you as with the richest of foods. David's the one person in scripture It's called a man after God's own heart. This is perspective. Maybe you feel like your, your problems are big and your God is small. And I want you to know truth today. It's far more powerful, far more good. Problems are so small in comparison. Someone pray for us. Lord, I just, I pray that you'd renew our minds by your word, that we'd be more convinced than ever of your goodness, of your tenderness, of your mercies and your love, but also of your power. I pray that our problems would feel so small because our picture of you is so big. I pray like David said, would our souls be satisfied with you? Would we not seek satisfaction anywhere else because we know it will leave us lacking? Would our souls cling to you? Would our hearts be convinced that you can be trusted? You can be trusted with our also. Lord, would we seek you? Would we spiritually pursue you? But would we also just surrender ourselves? Surrender control. Believing you're who you say you are. So I just release blessings of hope, blessings of peace. Would our perspective of you be more in alignment with who you are? Would you break off lies where there's discouragement? Would you speak hope? Whatever truth we need to hear about your character, about your heart, about your love, would you just whisper it to our hearts right now, even as we worship? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.